if you would turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. Once again, we'll look briefly at verse 1 and at verse 5 for just a moment. And while you're finding our familiar home base text for our series, The Church's Shepherds, let's get our minds thinking in this direction by considering an interaction that happened between God and the prophet Jeremiah. This happened about the end of the 7th century B.C. By now, Israel had, because of their disobedience, split into two kingdoms, and Jeremiah had been sent by God to preach warning, to preach repentance to the southern kingdom of Judah. And in Jeremiah 5, God gives Jerusalem a chance for forgiveness and pardon. And so God tells Jeremiah to search Jerusalem for just one man who seeks after God. If you can find one, I will pardon the city. God tells Jeremiah, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her, meaning Jerusalem. Now, Jeremiah agreed with the Lord's assessment that his people were overall a falsely religious people who were spiritually hardened even when the Lord disciplined them. I mean, Jeremiah himself said in Jeremiah 5, 3, O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they feel no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. So he agrees with that assessment. But then Jeremiah, the sensitive and weeping prophet, he had a thought. His thought was this. The common people of Israel, the workaday families, they're just spiritually ignorant. They weren't Bible students. They weren't scholars. They're not prophets. They're not priests. They're just the regular folks caught in their own ignorance. And so Jeremiah told the Lord, these are only the poor. They have no sense for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. So Jeremiah had a bright idea. He would go to the leaders. He would go to the shepherds. He would go to those educated in the word of God, in the ways of God, those who were spiritually responsible for Israel. He would go to the king. He would go to the officials. He would go to the priests. He would go to the noblemen. He said to the Lord, I will go to the great and will speak to them for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. And so Jeremiah went and he talked to the shepherds of Israel, to the leaders of Israel. And he came back to report to God. They all alike have broken the yoke. They have burst the bonds. In other words, there is no one faithful. And the rest of chapter 5 is God's conclusion that his people, both the sheep and the shepherds, of his people were fully deserving of his discipline as a people and his wrath as individuals. And now Jeremiah is given a commission because of the discovery he made. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire and this people would and the fire shall consume them. I think Jeremiah made a reasonable assumption. And that was that the sheep, the regular folks, they sort of get a pass because they're, they're ignorant to the word of God. But certainly the shepherds of Israel ought to be faithful and true and love the Lord their God with all their hearts. And so 
the question is then why were the regular people, why were the, the workaday folks, the sheep, steeped in a culture of spiritual rebellion and spiritual ignorance and falsehood and disobedience and selfishness in which justice was not done, God's ways not observed, the law of God utterly ignored. Why were they that way? The sheep were in distress because the shepherds had failed. The shepherds failed and the faith of the shepherds was nothing to write home about, nothing to boast of at all. And part of the root of the problem was that the shepherds of Israel no longer saw Israel as God's nation, but as a, as a people that belonged to them to be used for their own advantages. And in the very same way, the shepherds of the church of Jesus Christ do not own the church. The shepherds of the church go astray when they forget that the church doesn't belong to them. Today, I'd like to talk to you about shepherding Christ's church, not yours. 1 Timothy 3.1, again, our home base, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And we continue to key off of this very important text for the leadership of the church. And today I'd like to highlight one little phrase that's found tucked into the qualifications of a shepherd in verses 2 through 7. In listing the qualifications of a shepherd, we see the qualification of managing his own household well, insisting on sound behavior from his own children. And Paul gives the reasoning for that particular qualification. Look at verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church. There's the key. This is God's church. The shepherds are stewards. They are caretakers of that which does not belong to them. And so to help us as, a, as an entire church, as a whole church, be reminded that this is God's church. This is Christ's church. Turn with me back to the Old Testament to Ezekiel 34. And in Ezekiel 34, we'll consider the first six verses briefly and then get more focused on verses 3 and 4. Now, how is it that we can go to the Old Testament to talk about the New Testament church? Well, I'll make that case for you now. The ministry of Ezekiel, the prophet and the priest, occurred while in exile, both before and after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And so in this text, Ezekiel answers the question, what went wrong? Why were the people of Israel scattered? Why were they just taken everywhere. Now, the answer to that question is obviously multi-layered and complex, but part of the answer that the Lord gives through Ezekiel here is to lay the responsibility at the feet of the leadership, what God calls the shepherds of Israel. And these shepherds were more than just military or political leaders, more than just kings. They had a primary responsibility for the moral direction of the nation. They had a primary responsibility for the spiritual direction of the nation that they were to be a covenant-keeping people. And if you examine the history of the, the northern kingdom of Israel, beginning with Jeroboam I in 1 Kings 12, you'd see that the apostasy of the leadership is what proved to be the northern kingdom's ruin. Jeroboam immediately introduced idolatry, and from there, they sank further into sin and immorality until finally they were decimated by Assyria in 722 B.C. 
Ezekiel pointed out in Ezekiel 23 that the southern kingdom of Judah did not learn from her idolatrous sister to the north. And after King Josiah in the south, the last kings of Judah were all corrupted. They led the nation to spiritual and political disaster. And so Ezekiel is given the word of the Lord, which placed responsibility for Israel's severe discipline solely at the feet of the leaders. Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 1. Follow along with me. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. The title that God gives these leaders is the shepherds of Israel. This is a glorious title. This is a privileged title. This is an honored title. And yet they've shirked their responsibility Now, obviously here, the metaphor of shepherding has all the familiar connotations to us of leading, of guiding, of protecting, of caring, of feeding, of watering. They regard their nation like a flock of sheep in need of a caring shepherd leader. And so God here is expressing his profound grief, his anger at these unfaithful shepherds. In verse 2, he says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. This ah, this is in what's called an interjection. And it's translated the same word in Jeremiah 23, 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. It's a lament. It's profound disapproval. It's sadness mixed with anger. My sheep needed protecting and feeding and instead you're using them, you're abusing them, and you're losing them. It was the job of the king to be the protector of Israel, the caretaker of Jacob. He was merely a steward of God's people under the true king of Israel, God himself. In verse 6, God clearly stated, these are my sheep. They don't belong to you. But the shepherds began treating the people like their own personal property. Verse 4 says, you slaughter the fat ones, meaning you'll take everything they had and not watch out for them spiritually. They added to their wealth at the expense of the common people, to the kings, to the noblemen. The, The flock was a people to be plundered rather than a people to be protected. The king had the responsibility in the context of the law of Moses as God's appointed overseer to protect the most vulnerable in the community, the weak, the sick, the injured. And the indictment against the leaders, against the shepherds is detailed in verse 4. The weak they had not strengthened, the sick they had not healed, the injured they had not bound up, the strayed sheep they had not brought back, and the lost sheep they had not sought after. 
And of course, this isn't just speaking of the physically weakest members of society, but it's speaking of the devotion of the people to the right worship of Yahweh, to submission, to obedience. What were the people doing? They were simply following the terrible spiritual example of their leaders. That's all they were doing. The scariest thing I ever heard in seminary was when the professor said, your church will become like you. That terrifies me. And so the nation was slowly spiritually devastated until it no longer even remotely resembled a set-apart, holy, unique nation which was to display God's glory to all the other nations. Instead of caring for the sheep, the shepherds were harsh rulers. They were forceful. They were demanding. They were cruel. They were impatient. And so, verse 5, the sheep were scattered. Now, many take the view that this scattering is speaking of Israel scattering because of Assyria and because of Babylon, but it seems more likely that that was simply the physical consequence of the spiritual scattering that they'd already experienced. Let me put it in terms you can understand. It's possible for a group of people, some claiming to be Christians, maybe some not, to gather inside four walls, and yet the word of God is not proclaimed, the gospel is maligned, the songs that we sing are heretical, they're scattered. We may be in the same vicinity physically, but there's a scattering that happens spiritually. And long before Israel was scattered physically, they were scattered spiritually. And so for lack of positive moral spiritual leadership by leaders who loved God and loved his law, the people wandered from the Lord and they became a prey for idolatry and immorality. And yes, ultimately Assyria and Babylon came at the hand of the Lord against Israel, but God blames the leaders. From a human standpoint, it was their fault. Well, now we understand that this text is speaking of the apostate, the unbelieving shepherds of Israel. This isn't a message about apostate leadership. That would be very different. But it is sad to me at times when those in the ministry act like apostate leadership, when the elders and the pastors of a church act like these leaders of Ezekiel 34. In fact, the Geneva Bible, published right at the height of the Reformation, applied Ezekiel 34 to the office of elder, to the office of pastor. It said, quote, He describeth the office and duty of a good pastor who ought to love his flock and not be cruel toward them. So I want to leave Israel's context for a bit because the parallels to eldership to shepherding to pastoral ministry are so so very clear and i would appeal to the logic that no matter what covenant the people of god are under whether it's the mosaic covenant or us in the new covenant god's moral and spiritual expectations of the appointed under shepherds of his people are always the same it's always been the same god rebuked the shepherds of israel because they didn't spiritually feed the sheep what did jesus tell peter three times feed my sheep feed my sheep feed my sheep And so the answer, both to Israel's lack of shepherds and to the shepherds of the church, is found later in Ezekiel 34. The ultimate answer is that God himself will be the shepherd of his people. Look briefly with me at verse 15. Just as a side note, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. 
And so we obviously find the greatest fulfillment of this promise in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shepherd of the sheep. And in this age, he's identified to us also as the head of the church or the chief shepherd. So if we learn what God required of Israel's shepherds, we can draw exactly the same requirement of the church's shepherds because the mandate to shepherds is universal regardless of covenant. And what God does for us in verses 3 and 4 in particular is to give us a breakdown of the various categories of sheep that we have the privilege to shepherd. And so I'd like to focus on that this morning. I want to examine six categories of sheep for which shepherds and elders are responsible before God. And if shepherds will carefully and thoughtfully shepherd according to these categories, you can be certain you've fulfilled your duty. Now, I'm going to speak to this issue primarily concerning the preached word of God, concerning preaching, because that's the primary avenue of shepherding. That's the main way that we shepherd. But these categories easily apply also to counseling. They apply to leadership. They apply to personal interactions with church members as well. Now, I want you to picture these six categories as concentric circles or as a, as a target that we start with a, a circle in the middle and they get slowly bigger as we go out. And this will make sense to you. The very middle of these concentric circles are the, the church members that all shepherds dream of with each subsequent circle getting a little bit more difficult. Now, if you're wondering how to apply this to your life as somebody who's not a shepherd, aim for the middle. That's what I'm telling you. So let's let the text open up these categories to us. These categories are good for shepherds to be aware of and they're good for you as church members because they can serve as a self-evaluation. Which category am I in? The first category, right in the middle, we'll call the famished sheep. The famished sheep. At the end of verse 3, God indicts the unfaithful shepherds because they do not feed the sheep. The sheep need a steady and aggressive diet of the word of God. And this comes with a, a variety of spiritual dietary requirements, all under the label of expository preaching. What is expository preaching? It just means letting the text of the Bible speak for itself, what scripture says, what it means. There's a, a variety of ways to do this. First, the sheep require verse-by-verse verse expository preaching. They require verse-by-verse verse expository preaching. And I want to be even more clear about this. This is for their sake, not for the shepherds. It is possible as a teaching pastor to teach more to make myself happy than to make you happy. And we see this at times. I think this is a mistake that the idea of preaching for from one book with no breaks at all for years and years, especially if you're, you're a pastor who only preaches one time a week, that's a very, very narrow definition of expository preaching. What does that do? It makes your church a mile deep and an inch wide. It robs the church members of the whole story of scriptures. It robs them of the richness of other books. It creates an arrogance at times. And I've seen this before that somehow we have a righteous church because our pastor took 37 years to go through 3 John. You know, we're better than you. I believe in consecutive exposition. It is, it is the meat and potatoes of expository preaching. It is my primary practice. But while verse-by-verse verse exposition of Scripture is the, the bread and butter, the meat and potatoes of the spiritual diet of God's people, there, there's a second 
type of expository preaching we need. The sheep require expository preaching that includes biblical theology. Expository preaching that includes biblical theology. Now, biblical theology is a technical term. It is not as opposed to unbiblical theology. Biblical theology specifically is a category of theology that speaks of the the theology of the author, the theology of the text of the book. In other words, what is the theology embedded in whatever text we're considering? That's biblical theology. And how does it connect to other places in Scripture? So whatever text is being considered, the theology of that text is paramount. You cannot just skip to some little moral lesson. You have to understand the theology behind the text. And this is very exciting. Biblical theology is a treasure hunt that at any moment, whatever text we're preaching, we open it and God will reveal truths about himself in that text. It's a treasure hunt. Every week we find treasures of eschatology, Christology, soteriology, And we're all to be on that treasure hunt together. But not only do the sheep require verse-by-verse expository preaching, and expository preaching that includes biblical theology, third, the sheep require expository preaching that includes systematic theology. It includes systematic theology. And what's the difference? Well, if biblical theology teaches us what one text says theologically, systematic theology tells us what many texts tell us theologically. Now, when you think of the term systematic theology, immediately you think of Bible study and discipleship program and and even our own Bible training institute. And we don't usually associate systematic theology with preaching. But can I tell you this? Systematic theology must be preached. The grand truths of the Bible from front to back. And what do we call preaching systematic theology? What's another name for that sort of sermon? This is actually a bad word in some circles. A systematic theology sermon is called a topical sermon or a topical sermon series. Now, let me get technical with you just for a moment. There are two types of Topical messages. Here's the technical term. Terrible and good. (laughs) A terrible topical sermon is the kind that we all hate. There's no attention to context. There's a pre-made conclusion before the Bible was ever opened. And it's the preacher coming up with a cute idea and then going to find a Bible verse to match his cute idea. Those are terrible. A good topical message or series follows our historical grammatical hermeneutic, still remains true to the intent of the author. It remains true to the context of whatever passage you're considering. In fact, the first part of this series that we're in, The Church's Shepherds, this is a topical series on the systematic theology area of ecclesiology. Because we're considering a number of different texts. We'll revert back to verse-by-verse exposition when we get to 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, all the way through verse 7. But why is it important to not only give the meat and potatoes of verse-by-verse exposition, which is the primary thing we do, and biblical theology, and systematic theology, which, by the way, includes applied theology? Why is that important? I think the shepherds, especially in, in the circles that we're more familiar with, I think to some degree they fail their people if they are preaching through one book of the Bible for years and years with no breaks and no variety. What's happening to the marriages? 
What's happening to the children? What's happening to the families? What's happening to the ecclesiology, the study of the church? What's happening to the relationships? What's happening to the fear and the anxiety? What's happening to those who are suffering physically and need encouragement? No, there's to be a variety. And yes, we love the meat of the word. But every once in a while, you eat enough meat, broccoli sounds really good, doesn't it? We need variety. And so faithful shepherds are to feed the famished sheep, the ones with the voracious appetite for the word of God. This is the foundation. This is the bedrock of a fruitful and healthy church. Now we go out just a little bit in our concentric circles. The second category of sheep we'll call the frail sheep. The frail sheep. They, they may be famished also, but they're also in the category of the frail God indicts Israel's shepherds because, in verse 4, the weak you have not strengthened. Now, we call them frail because this word here, weak, it's actually a verb. And it's not active. It's, It's a passive verb. In other words, it speaks of sheep who have been weakened. Things have happened to them outside of their control. An outside force has come against this person and rendered him feeble and fragile, He has spiritual osteoporosis. Any little bump and bones will break. And we will have frail sheep among us. It's a word that can simply mean being tired, being worn out, being grieved. They can be spiritually weak. The precious ones who are afraid and timid in their faith. But we can also extend those, this out to those who are, are physically weak since that brings its own spiritual demands, doesn't it? We can extend this out to the morally weak, to those who continue to fail time and time again and get discouraged and feel like they're never going to progress in their sanctification. We could even, we could even exclude, include the economically weak. Paul referred to these in 1 Corinthians one twenty seven: the weak in the world, those with no noble standing, no wealth. Nothing to fall back on. The frail among us need encouragement. They need kindness. They need the pulpit to have soft, pillowy edges sometimes. They need a physical touch. They need a smile. They need a word of encouragement. They need to be pulled aside and simply prayed for. Or the simple, godly question, how are you doing? How are you? And when they say, fine, A godly shepherd says, now how are you really doing? And how can I really pray for you? And so you have the famished sheep, you have the precious frail sheep going farther out in our concentric circles of sheep categories. The next category we would call the festering sheep. The festering sheep. God condemns the unfaithful shepherds of Israel by telling them in verse 4, the sick you have not healed. Now, interestingly here, The sick is the same Hebrew word as the weak, but it's in a different form, which suggests more responsibility on the part of the sheep. In other words, they're not in the category of weak victims of circumstances. They have liability. They have done things to themselves. They have spiritually inflicted their own wounds. We will have in the church precious believers who are diseased, who have a a festering illness of a false ideology of some deviant doctrine that they've heard or a popular book that they've read. I always get really nervous when I suddenly see a book I've never heard of being carried around by 50 of you. That means I have to read it and I pray that God don't make me preach a sermon on this, but every once in a while I have to. 
So it's the shepherd's duty to do what? To frame your convictions solely in the word of God alone. This bedrock of sound doctrine and to challenge these festering ideologies with biblical logic and with precision. Shepherds are not to just sit back and let popular new ideologies just steamroll the church without these issues being addressed occasionally. Now, obviously, we can't spend every Sunday addressing every perversion of truth that exists. We would never run out of material, but we can address the Christian mythology that's popular at any given time. These are spiritual diseases which can fester in the people if left to grow and to multiply. The sheep can fester in all different ways. We can fester with a wrong view of marriage. We can fester with a wrong view of the family. We need a biblical framework in which to put these things. The church often festers with a wrong view of money. In our church, we address that particular need by preaching a series we call Joyful Generosity. How did it work? You've given a million dollars because your view of money has been changed. We need a a, a biblical view of relationships. We need a biblical view of how we treat one another, of forgiveness. All of these things need a framework. And so shepherds are to lance the boils that are festering and apply the bandages of God's word to the loving wounds that get inflicted. It's the fourth category of sheep we'll call the fallen sheep. And we're moving farther from the center here, the fallen sheep. God says in verse 4, the injured you have not bound up. In other words, you haven't given care, you haven't helped. The injured, it's a word that means the shattered, the smashed, the broken. Those that are just devastated. This could be someone suffering from tremendous spiritual depression or anxiety or life circumstances that is just eating this person alive spiritually and emotionally Anything and everything can fall into this category. It can be great loss, such as the death of a spouse or the loss of a relationship with, a, with an adult child or a terminal illness. It generally falls into the category of things that you thought would never happen to you. How often we have heard a grieving saint say, I'm just so tired and worn out by this sorrow. I'm wrung out. I'm broken. I'm shattered. I'm in a million pieces. It's depleting to suffer. It's, it's draining to mourn. It's debilitating to be depressed and anxious. A saint may be fully convinced of his salvation and of the doctrines of grace, but not fully convinced that he'll survive this grief. And so shepherds need to have a very well-honed theology of suffering because the church needs the shepherds to walk them through it at times. They need to know That God's sovereignty is bigger than you think. They need to know that solving the problem is not the point of a trial. They need to know to submit willingly to the plan of God. They need to know to trust in the integrity of God, to let godly character shine through, to find God's power in the time of weakness, to plead with the Lord while you praise the Lord, to obey the Lord in the midst of sorrow, to be grateful for God's tender care, to receive lasting and permanent comfort from God, to use suffering for self-examination, to humbly forgive all who have caused sorrow, to be confident in the abiding presence of God, to expect that God's wisdom will amaze you and to ultimately give glory to God for his gracious response to your need. We need a well-developed, deep, rich theology of suffering because we have sheep who are frail. They are 
hurting. They're wounded. And the sheep need shepherds who will weep with those who weep. They need the pulpit to cry tears at times. They need the word of God to wrap its arms around them. They need to hear, thus says the Lord, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so you have the famished sheep, the frail sheep, the festering sheep, the fallen sheep. Well, now we get to the battlefront. We get where the arrows are thick and flying fast in the spiritual realm, and that is the failing sheep. Getting closer to the edge here. God says, the strayed you have not brought back, in verse 4. Who are the straying sheep? It could be those who are tempted, who seem to be in a constant battle between their love for Christ and their love for the world. It can be those who can't seem to get into the glorious routine of living their lives in the church. They're hit and miss. They're unreliable. Those who never really get into the rhythm of living in the church. They could be the complainers who see the cloud in every silver lining. They could be the attenders who sit quietly listening for years without ever really being part of the body. They're they're the ghosts that haunt the halls of the church without engaging. It could be those, and, and these break our hearts, who silently slip away unnoticed because no one knew they were here in the first place. It could be those who seem to always be hanging on to spiritual life support. The failing sheep are the ones who weigh on you. The failing sheep are the ones who worry you. The failing sheep are the ones who seem to be always on the edge of doing something life-altering. These are the sheep that cause the shepherds to lose sleep. They're an unknown quantity. They may be sitting quietly under the preached word, yet silently arguing with every word, and you never know it. Or they may be silently suffering and no one knows it. So what are shepherds to do? What do you do with these failing sheep? How do you preach and minister to them? Well, the text tells us, as much as it is in your power, bring them back. Bring them back. Bring them back to the gospel over and over again. Bring them back to Christ every week. Bring them back to the sound ecclesiology of the body life of the church. Bring them back to the throne of God in your prayers. That's the duty of faithful shepherds. Now, some straying sheep will resist. They might bite a little. Some of them bite a lot. And some simply won't respond. But the shepherds are to at least try Try to get them personally involved with another believer who will take them under his wing. Try to encourage them to greater body life involvement. Now, just to be clear, there is a place and a time to stand for righteousness and purity when a member is rebelliously and stubbornly engaged in life-altering sin. At times, separating someone from the body of Christ is the best thing for the church. But those times are few and far between. Your first consideration is to remember the failing sheep. Bring them back. Now in verse 4, God says, The lost you have not sought. The lost is a participle. It means the perishing, the dying, the ones that are doing this, the perishing, the dying. And the job of the shepherds of Israel was to both model and encourage the nation to wholeheartedly follow after Yahweh, but there were the lost sheep who were Jews in name only. They were purely cultural in their false faith. A lost sheep is no longer with the flock. A lost sheep isn't part of the flock. A lost sheep is just in the physical vicinity of the flock. That's it. 
And so you have the famished sheep, the frail sheep, the festering sheep, the fallen sheep, and the failing sheep. We'll call this last category the future sheep. The future sheep. Jesus spoke of the future sheep, the ones he loves, yet are separated from the flock. In fact, it could be very well that he was referencing Ezekiel 34 when he said in Luke 15, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Paul told Timothy famously to preach the word in 2 Timothy 4, and in the same breath he said, Do the work of an evangelist. While you're feeding the famished sheep and all the sheep in between, Don't forget the lost sheep. Don't forget those looking in the window. Don't forget those that have been around but haven't come to faith in Christ. Somebody asked me recently, why do you preach the gospel to the church? Because I don't know who the church really is. Most of you are saved, but in a room with this many people, all of you being saved is statistically unlikely. And you may have been here for a while. So we keep preaching to the lost sheep. And one of the greatest victories I ever get to experience as a pastor is when somebody says, I have come to faith in Christ. I've been faking it for years, but now it's real. Love that. I'll tell you this. The pulpits of the church should be ornately decorated with the intricacies of the gospel. That you're saved by the grace of God, Romans 5. That you were elected and chosen by God, Ephesians 1. That Christ provided atonement for your sin, 1 Peter 3. That God gave you a divine calling to salvation, Romans 8. That you must be converted by repenting and believing the gospel, Mark 1. That you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit as a new creation in Christ, John 3, that you must be unified with Christ in his death. Galatians 2, that you've received legal justification from God, that you're sanctified in the past, in your position before God, in the present by your obedience to God, and in the future when you're perfected by God in glory, that you're preserved by God, you will persevere in the faith, and you will be glorified in the presence of God. The pulpits should be decorated with those truths. The church should be saturated in those truths. You know what I love about when Pastor Darren says the children are dismissed? I know all the kids are going to be crowded into their various rooms they're stuffed in right now and they're going to hear those truths every week. The shepherds are to be relentless in gospel proclamation. You know what happens to a church over time? I've seen this. I've experienced it. The Lord begins to bring the lost to us. Why is that? Well, because the church learns that they can bring their lost co-workers and family and friends because the cross will have a, a brilliant spotlight on it and Christ will be highlighted and Christ will be all honored and exalted. Because what is salvation? It's very simple. Salvation is the connection of the gospel message with God's elect, the future sheep. That's salvation. In fact, this was... What was so exciting to our beloved brother, Charles Spurgeon. 
He believed so wholeheartedly in the doctrine of election. He believed that the preaching of the gospel was guaranteed to succeed. He believed that the the gospel faithfully presented from the pulpit was the key to seeing the lost converted. This is what he said. That is why we preach. If there are so many fish to be taken in the net, I will go and catch some of them. Because many are ordained to be caught, I spread my nets with eager anticipation. I've never won a Super Bowl. I've never won a World Series. I've never really won anything in the realm of sports or any other competitive areas. I've gotten a few participation ribbons, like we all have. (laughs) Never even been to a Super Bowl. Never even been to a World Series. I got something better. I've seen a child of the devil become a child of the living God. I've seen an outspoken God-hater become so convicted by the gospel as to be speechless in humiliation before his new Savior. I have seen a woman saved singing the third verse of a hymn because it proclaimed truth. I have seen and I am fully convinced that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so shepherds are to go after the future sheep. I have the only job on earth that is guaranteed to succeed if only I will proclaim the gospel. Jesus said, I will build my church. I wouldn't be a pastor if he said, I might build my church. I will build my church. So shepherds should ask these questions and the shepherding ministry of the church should be organized around these questions. Am I satisfying the hunger of the famished sheep with a well-balanced spiritual diet? Am I gently encouraging the frail sheep with the soothing word of God? Am I pointing the festering sheep continually back to the objective inspired truth of Scripture and sound doctrine? Am I grabbing the hand of the fallen sheep and reminding of the gospel and of God's infinite help and grace? Am I going after the failing sheep to help them back to the fold? And am I faithfully proclaiming the cross and repentance and forgiveness to the future sheep? Here's our prayer. Here's our mission. Here's our duty. That the famished are full with Christ. That the frail are fortified by Christ. That the festering are focused upon Christ. And that the fallen are are fueled in Christ. And that the failing are fruitful in Christ. And that the future are following Christ. That's our mission. And so when Paul gives the qualification of shepherding in 1 Timothy 3, 5, that the shepherds are to care for God's church... You understand it's with those categories of sheep that he has in mind. They don't belong to the shepherds. They belong to the great shepherd. How did the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, how did he perfectly fulfill serving all those needs? How did he care for the famished and the frail and the festering and the fallen and the failing and the future? How did he do it? Matthew 5 tells us, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, I'm fully aware of the fact that far less than 1% of you even listening to this are shepherds or ever will be. So let me ask all of you one question. Are you being so filled up with the word of God that like Paul told the Colossian church, that you're letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And I'm asking you this. 
Because at times, despite the best efforts of the shepherds of Christ's church, when the church member closes his heart to the word of God, closes his heart to the shepherds of the church, that they're giving care and concern, great spiritual harm is done. And frankly, you place yourself in danger of life-altering discipline from the Lord. Instead, be hungry, be humble, be eager, be learners, be disciples so that this glorious shepherd to sheep and sheep to shepherd relationship produces a church that we can be proud of. More importantly, that Christ will be proud of and that he will commend. The churches of Revelation 2 and 3 are the churches that Christ, he walks to and fro among them. Do you picture the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the chief shepherd, he walks to and fro among us and he analyzes the heart of the shepherds, he analyzes the heart of the sheep, he analyzes the work of the shepherds, he analyzes the work of the sheep. Two churches, Philadelphia, Smyrna, they're the only ones that get a commendation only. Between me and you, I'd like to add Grace Bible Church to that short list. <laughs> it is the sheep-to-shepherd relationship, the shepherd-to-sheep relationship. Faithful shepherds, faithful sheep. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the church bought by Christ. We are yours. We belong to you. We have nothing of our own. We have nothing that belongs to us. The only thing we brought was our sin and degradation and need. We came in the nakedness of our sin and you clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. And so we gladly affirm that we belong to you. We gladly affirm that we are Christ's church. We gladly affirm that we belong to the great shepherd. We gladly affirm that we are the younger siblings of the firstborn one. We gladly affirm in our little context here this body of believers that meets on Young Street that we are yours. May we present ourselves humbly before you to work hard for the gospel, to be men who are godly husbands and fathers, to be women who are godly wives and mothers and leaders with our children to be those that present a good testimony to the world to be those that love the gospel that that serve in the church and that serve and love one another oh lord i pray that our reputation is that we are a church that because of christ because of being owned by him we would love one another 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 i pray that we would be obedient I pray that we would be a force for the gospel. May there be people we have never met that someday we will meet in heaven who would say, because of the faithfulness of Grace Bible Church, I stand here today having believed the gospel. Use us, Lord, for we are not our own. This is your church. Do with us as you please. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.